0: Well, I am very excited to share this scripture with you this morning. In fact, if I think back to almost three years ago, when I first started preaching at South Shore, this is perhaps the sermon that I've wanted to preach since I arrived here. Uh, because this, this sermon really explains or opens the door to help us to understand the Christian life. It, it helps us to balance both what the scriptures say are true of us with our experience of What is true of us? We're going through the book of Romans, and I know that we have several guests. We welcome you here, uh, but do realize you are jumping into the middle of a sermon series. We're in the the book of Romans in chapter 7, and for the last month, or actually six or seven weeks, we've been in chapters 6 and 7. And these chapters are profound chapters in the book of romans and they're very difficult to understand without the sermon we're about to receive this morning at the end of chapter 5 we are told that god gave the law to increase the sin to multiply the sin to increase our guiltiness before him and when we looked at that we discovered that that was so that when he came to cover over our sin to redeem us by the cross we would see that though our sin is great atonement in Jesus Christ is greater. The thing that Christ has done on our behalf by dying on the cross is beyond our expectation, our hope or anything that we could have asked for. Chapter 6 transitions though. And Paul says, what are we to say then? If God increased our sin by giving us the law so that our guiltiness before him would be greater, so that the glory to him through Christ would be at its ultimate, should we help God out? Sin more, that grace may abound more to the glory of God more? And the answer, of course, is no, absolutely not. But then Paul gives us a very challenging answer. And, and his answer is, don't do that. You ought not to do that. You should not do that. It wouldn't be right to do that. He says, you cannot do that. You cannot do that if you are saved. If you are in Christ, if you have been justified, you cannot go on sinning because you have been crucified With Christ. And for chapter 6 all the way through to where we're going to pick up halfway through chapter 7. What Paul has been telling us is that we are holy. Not only, not merely positionally holy. But we have been made holy in our nature. And therefore, at least in some respect, we never sin. Now, we're not preaching perfectionism. Of course, we know that we sin, and this is what makes these chapters difficult. But at at one level, when Paul begins to answer, should we go on sinning, he says, no, you should not go on sinning. Why not? Because you cannot. Do you not know that those of you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death, united with him in his death, so that we might walk in newness of life? You're a new creature, The old is gone, the new has come, you have died, you have been raised up with Christ, you are a new creature, and in some way, that new creature does not, cannot sin. Nor does that new creature, that new man or that new woman, desire sin, because that new man, that new woman is holy. That's a problem, isn't it? that's a problem because we still sin and we still desire to sin so are we not saved because what i've just said doesn't match any of our experience so are we not saved and one of the things that we've done is challenge us to say well don't take for granted that you are make your election sure make sure That you are not just in some counterfeit conversion. That you truly understand the gospel, love the Lord Jesus Christ, and have been crucified with him, raised with him. But more than that, there is a struggle in the Christian life that the simplistic answer, you've died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, you're holy, you do not sin, you do not desire sin, just does not satisfy So today's text, finally, and I've been telling you, it's coming. Today's text is where Paul finally resolves that. But I want us to recognize, before we take a look at this text, that in Paul's mind, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wants to make sure before he gets to the struggle, which we're going to talk about today, which we're all well acquainted with in our lives, but before he gets to the struggle, he wants to make sure that we understand we have died. And we have been raised to new life, that the old has been done away with. That is, if we were to be very wooden in our translation, the old has been abolished. The old has been annihilated. And before he entertains the reality that we still struggle with sin, he wants us to know that that is true of us. That's that's the, the order, the logical order of the book of Romans. Let's establish what is true first and then we'll deal with the objections. So today we get to deal with the objections which aren't real objections but they will hopefully solidify what Paul has been trying to get to. Let's take a look at this text. Would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 25. As you're looking for your place please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans Chapter 7, verses 12 to 25. This is the word of God. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy. And righteous. And good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, it was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, Oh, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's the word of God. Let's pray. God, this text is difficult. It's hard for us to understand. And yet, uh, instinctively, we cry out, yes, that's my experience. I, that, that's what I'm going through. I pray that you'd help me. Help me to be clear and articulate. Stop my tongue from saying that which is not true. Help me not to go too far to try to reveal something that you have not revealed. Help us to stay within the safety of your word. I pray that the things that we discover from this text would be profitable for us, that we might journey in Christ together. We long to glorify you even while we fail in our flesh. Help us, O Lord build up this church save some unto salvation perhaps even here this morning glorify your name help me to preach and oh holy spirit preach to me also we pray this in the name of christ amen please be seated In order to understand this text, this morning's message is going to be structured a little bit differently than perhaps we're used to. We're going to have five parts to this morning, and the first four parts are all preamble. But by preamble, I do not mean introductory. the The meat of this morning's message and sermon is in the preamble. And, and what in my study I've tried to do and in are putting together this sermon is to give us the information that we need before we get to the text. So hopefully by the time we get to the text after looking at these four steps of preamble the text by God's grace and uh, by his Holy Spirit will open up to us. So that's the hope. So so the preamble is not introductory. The preamble is the meat of the message that hopefully will prepare us uh, to hear the reading of God's word afresh. These Points of preamble need to be said if we're going to understand the text. So let's start there. Preamble number one. We cannot understand this text, not responsibly anyway, without acknowledging that there is no consensus among Christian scholars and pastors about how we should interpret it. And this at the very front end has to bring appropriate humility to our effort to understand it. So I'm going to preach the text to you. And what I've done prayerfully, according to my study, is to present to you what makes best sense to me. But I'm telling you at the front end, you could go and get a book and find two other major positions all within the realm of respectable orthodoxy, within our particular tribe of Christianity. So it's, I'm not saying that you have to go to the Roman Catholics or even to the Eastern Orthodox to get a different view. Within reformed evangelicalism, there's no consensus about how to read this text. It's a difficult text. So I, I, I asked myself if I should then present each, and we could spend three weeks doing each, but don't think that's necessary. So long as I am honest with you, that this is my best effort in keeping with the blessing of the elders to be able to lay this text before us. But I will tell you what the three, generally speaking, interpretations of this text are. And then if you're curious, I'd love to walk through that with you. We can explore that together. I can recommend some books for you if you want to study an alternative to the, the reading that you'll get this morning. So, is this text, number one, about a non-Christian? Is Paul going back to his pre-conversion life and articulating something about his life before he was saved? This is a very popular view. It's not the view that we're going to take. But you can understand that, right? That there, he, he feels unable, completely without any power to to do the things that God is asking him to do. And that seems to drive against everything that we've been preaching for the last month. That we are created anew. That we might walk in newness of life. That the old man has been crucified with Christ. We're a new creation. And then you get to these verses. He says, I want to do what is right, but I can't. That seems to be... Directly contradicting what Paul has claimed, especially in chapter 6. And so there are very respected scholars. Two of my favorite commentators on this passage say Paul is telling us what his life was like before he was saved. And then you get to chapter 8 and you see the in influence of the Holy Spirit and you begin to see a greater victory in Paul's life. So that's one alternative. Second alternative is that what you get here is Paul talking about what it is to be a weak or an immature or a what sometimes is called a carnal Christian that there are some Christians that though they've been justified, though they have been sanctified, united with Christ in his death and resurrection that they've they've got a new holy nature, they're nevertheless weak. And they're not participating in their own sanctification. They're not working out their salvation with fear and trembling. They're not beholding the glory of God and being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so they continue to trip and to stumble and to fall. And Paul is just acknowledging that there are those kinds of Christians. That's another alternative, not the one that we're going to take this morning. You can see that there, right? Uh, chapter 6 talks about this, this new power, this new nature, this, this new ability to, to live. Uh, the law is now internally written on our hearts. We're no longer trying to conform to a, an outside standard. We're living from the inside out. And then you get to these verses, and it seems like, well, where's the inside out victory? But there's a third option, and this is the option that we're going to take. It's perhaps the most difficult reading and that's partially why i like it because you really have to get inside paul's thinking you have to you have to slow down in your reading of the text to understand his argument step by step you can't make uh, quick glancing conclusions on what you think paul has said you have to really get inside what he's trying to articulate if you're going to make sense of this third option. And the third option is that this is the experience of a strong Christian, a mature Christian. This is the experience of Paul himself while he is writing the book of Romans. This is is Paul later in life, long after converted, after having written much scripture inspired by God, having been a guide to many, Christ's ambassador, uh, the, the apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, And Paul is saying, this may be true of me. And in other times, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And here he's saying, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I believe Paul's being very honest, very vulnerable with us to say, this is normative for the sanctified believer. So if you're going to understand chapter 6 and the first 11 verses of chapter 7, you have to understand them in light of verses 12 through 25 of chapter 7. This is the normative, mature Christian experience. Now there's plausible reasons for all three. I take this third option, For many reasons, and this could be the whole sermon. Why why this option? Let me just give you three. Throughout, Paul says, I, I, in the present tense. Now, it might be that, I mean, I know in Greek grammar, present tense doesn't need to be present tense. But the force of, of this passage is, this is me right now. This is me right now struggling in my Christian life, and I'm not taking anything away from what Christ has done for me. I'm a new creation, but you have to know what is normative, and I'm going to put myself, says Paul, forward as the example. In in chapter 4, he puts forward who? Abraham and David. In chapter 7, he puts forward himself. You want to understand justification? Take a look at Abraham. Take a look at David. If you want to understand sanctification, take a look at the mature apostle Paul. He is the example that he brings forward to help us to understand what he's trying to teach us about sanctification. Secondly, Paul loves the law. You'll notice this. I delight in the law in my inner being. I agree with the law that it is right and good. I want to bring it about. My desire is for righteousness, so on and so forth. And and this kind of talking, this love of the law from the inside out from the heart is something that I believe only a regenerate new man could say. This love of all that is right and good, that belongs to the Christian, not to the unsaved. You might say, well, before Paul was saved, he was the Hebrew of Hebrew and the Pharisee of Pharisees, and he loved the law of God, and I think that's true, that he claimed to love the law of God, but he did not love the law of God then the way he does now. It's a different kind of love. Thirdly, Paul speaks of himself as only a Christian could. When you get to the end, and I don't want to ruin the end, but wretched man that I am, That's the cry of the Christian. That's the cry of the Christian. That's not the cry of the unsaved. The unsaved might say some variation of that, but they don't mean it the way Paul means it at the end of this chapter. So for those reasons, and I could give you more, but we have more to talk about this morning, We're going to interpret this text, these verses, as the normative Christian experience. The more mature you are in Christ, the the closer you get to God in your progressive sanctification, the more these verses will resonate for you. If you're a baby Christian, you don't hardly even know what you're upset about. But the more mature you get, I'm I'm going to try to persuade you, the more these verses will seem to apply. this is autobiographical of paul normative of the christian experience that's preamble number one preamble number two we cannot understand this text without understanding what it means to be human biblically speaking what does the bible say about what it means to be human And there's a lot of different places we could go for this. We could go to the Imagio Dei, right? God created us in his image. There's not a lot of information there. We have to uh, go far and wide in the scriptures to understand what that means. But there is one place in the Bible that I think is extremely helpful to give us a biblical view of what it means to be a human person. The Shema was a prayer that Israel prayed every day, and Jews today still read the Shema. The Shema means to hear, to listen, and, and this is in Deuteronomy 6. This is what, when someone asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He said, well, the Shema is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. So Jesus himself is going back to this and saying, You want to understand what, what it means to be a human person? Go to the Shema, go to this part of the Bible. And, and what we often do, and why we have trouble when we get to this part of the book of Romans, is we have a very Platonic, a very Gnostic, a very Greek. Understanding of what it means to be a human being. And, and, and Plato wasn't entirely wrong, and the Greek philosophy is not entirely wrong, but it's overly simplistic and it doesn't have the same categories. So, for Plato and for the Greek philosophers, to be human was to be body, physical, material, and, and spirit or soul, immaterial. And the goal of Greek philosophers was to get out of your body so that you could be in a more pure state. The immaterial, but we know that that is directly contradicted by the Bible. God made the creation physical, and He said it is good. So, where we agree with Plato, and this is where it gets messy for us and confusing, we agree that we are a body soul creature, or, or we are we are material and immaterial we agree with that but it's it's more than that and and what we need to do if we're going to understand paul is to understand the way paul thinks about what it means to be human we don't want to find out what did plato think about what it means to be human and then impose that on the text we want to understand what is it that is in paul's mind when he's thinking of the human person And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, This is very significant. Go back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm just going to read verses 4 and 5 of the Shema. Shema being the Hebrew word for to hear. And not just to hear, but to listen, to, to receive the teaching. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then it continues on, but I want to focus in on verse five. But we often appeal to the Shema for verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, and we, we start there, especially if we're trying to unpack the Trinity. We want to understand how can God be three? Well, we go back here and we say, Well, the God is one. Behold your God, the the Lord alone. Uh, Yahweh alone is your God is what's being said there. There's, there's a oneness to God. So verse 4 is all about God but verse 5 is really important too because that's all about us as human creatures. What does it mean to be a human person? And Moses, inspired by God, says this that we should love this one Lord, our God, And then he divides the human person into three parts. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now Jesus uh, teaches, and and sometimes if you read this, he says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. And you're like, what's going on there? That's a different sermon, but for those of you who are inquisitive, let me just give you this little tidbit on the side. Uh, The word for mind and the word for heart are, are different. But they mean the same thing in Hebrew. And so in some manuscripts of Deuteronomy 6.5, the word would be for heart, and in some manuscripts it would be for mind. So when the the gospel writers were writing, well, what did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Well, he said the Shema was. Well, what shema? Because some Shema's say heart and some say mind. And so they're they're both in there. But we want to go back to Deuteronomy. This is Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews a Pharisee of Pharisees he understood who God was and who we are from the Old Testament scriptures and so these are the three categories remember heart and mind I'm going to get to that in a moment being the same thing so you have your heart your soul and your strength your heart your soul and your strength now that sounds easy enough we should love God with our heart with our soul and with our strength but what does it mean? The Hebrew word for heart is lave. Now lave is a word that can be used for your physical heart. The heart in your body that pumps blood and keeps your body alive. But that's not what Moses has in mind here. Throughout the Old Testament, the word lave also is used to talk about the center of your person. Sometimes it's used to be about the immaterial part of who you are, which we would call soul. Or spirit. More specifically, this word lave is used in the Old Testament to talk about your intellect, your mind. So if we think that we think from our brains and we feel with our hearts, right? That's modern Western thinking. That's how we separate. We have a separation between our mind and our heart. Not so in, in the Bible. The mind is in the heart. And then the mind, if we want to use what we know about the brain, will activate the brain. But our brain is just a part of our body. It's, it's a member like our arms or our feet or our tongue. The brain gets activated by the mind, which is at the center of your person in your lave. So the mind, the, the, the seat of your intellect is not in your brain according to the Bible. The brain obeys the mind, the lave at the center of your person. So the intellect is driven from the heart through the brain, the brain being a physical member activated by the heart. That's really important. We get that wrong. Secondly, in the Bible, the the heart, the lave, is the seat of your emotion, your affections. We understand this. This makes sense. And we know that, right? Because we feel, when you feel emotion, we feel it from this general area in our body. And the Bible says it's true. Your, the seat of your emotions is the center of your person, your lave. Thirdly, the lave is spoken of as the seat of your volition, that is where you make decisions. Do we use our brain to make decisions? Sure we do, but the decision at the core is being made in your lave and then that decision is being funneled through your brain and then your brain communicates to your tongue or to your arms or to your feet or whatever. So according to the Bible, to love God with your heart is to love God with the center of who you are. To love God with the seat of your mind the seat of your affections and the seed of your will. The next word, love the Lord your God with all your soul. This is very troub- troublesome to us, problematic for us to understand because what is the soul to us? It's the immaterial part of who we are. We're body and soul, right? It's not exactly what is described here in Deuteronomy 6.5. The Hebrew word for soul is nefesh. Nefesh. What is a nefesh? Literally, the nefesh is your throat. Love the Lord your God with all your throat? Why your throat? A couple of reasons. Because you bring wind, the ruach. Ruach is a Hebrew word that means wind or spirit. You see how all of this is getting complicated. You love the Lord your God with your throat because you bring your spirit, your wind, in through your throat to your lungs. And it's the, your spirit. Your breath, your wind, through your nefesh, your throat, that keeps you alive. You also drink water through your throat, and you eat food through your throat. So nefesh, then, is a Hebrew word that literally means throat, but it begins to mean more than just your throat. It becomes your whole human person. Love the Lord your God with all your human person your life this is ambiguous what does this mean does it mean just your immaterial part well no because heart might be able to cover most of that does it mean just with your body no because you don't really have a body that's devoid of the immaterial part so what is your nefesh well your nefesh is your self body and soul body and spirit material and immaterial it's you the whole you Love the Lord your God with all of you, with your life. Engage your body, empowered by your heart, to love the Lord your God. So whereas we like to make a strong distinction between material and immaterial, God doesn't do that here. Now there are many places in the Bible that affirm that we have the material and the immaterial. But here the two cannot be easily separated from one another. Not in the word nephesh. So soul means life, with all your life. Finally, we get to all your might. Now this is, this is interesting because we don't have this concept of might in human personhood. I don't think. Anyway, it's not common. That, that personhood for us is, it Starts and stops with the exterior of our bodies and then inside of our bodies we have a immaterial soul and we have almost this concept of the the soul within a machine of what it means to be human and that's it that's humanity but but the biblical understanding of human personhood goes far beyond that. haven't gone far enough and that's what this love the Lord your God with all your might means now the word for might is ma'od, ma'od, what does ma'od mean ma'od is just an adverb that means very, love the Lord your God with all your very, so if you're fast that's good but if you're ma'od fast you're very fast, love the Lord your God with all your very if you're hungry that's one thing but if you're very hungry you're ma'od hungry, so So love the Lord your God with all your muchness. It's a superlative word. What does that mean? Well, it means love the Lord your God with everything that is within your sphere outside of you. Not just with the interior, but with the exterior. So, for example, this idea of ma'od means with all of your possessions. So for us, like we think of money or iPod or something else, iPhone. Love the Lord your God with everything that you own. That's your ma'od. Love the Lord your God with your ma'od. Love the Lord your God with all of your property. So we all live somewhere. Love the Lord your God with where you live, your house and your yard. Love the Lord your God with all your influence. The things that you say are going to influence people. So when you speak, your personhood is now outside of you and it's influencing others. Love the Lord your God with all of that. Love the Lord your God with all of your relationships, your familial relationships, your church relationships, your work relationships. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your ma'od. Love the Lord your God with, with all your Pets and the animal kingdom. Remember, back in when we were made in the image of God, we were to have dominion. So how we treat our dependents, whether they be children or animals or even not our dependents, the way we love the whales and the lions and the zebras. That would extend to the environment. Not many of us have to worry about this next one, but for some people, to love the Lord their God with all their ma'od, oh, they have to love the Lord their God with all of their armies and with all of their navies and all of their air force. That's the ma'od for some people. And so personhood extends beyond just what's in our bodies and inside. Personhood, according to God, goes outside what's the reach of your personhood. Love the Lord your God with all of that. That's what it means biblically to be a human person. Heart. What is the heart? Intellect mind emotions affections volition choices with all of your Nephesh, your body and your, your immaterial self and with all your maod, as far as the reach of your human person that's part of who you are now this seems like quite a detour but this is critically important if we're going to understand this text Because what Paul has been saying to us in Romans chapter six is that we now have a new heart. That's really interesting if you think about how he's conceptualizing what it means to be a human person. And and Romans 6, 17 becomes super important as I said when we went through it. So just take a look back there. Join me back in Romans chapter six, verse 17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin and where was that slavery in the heart, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Paul is speaking all of that of the heart. And so now the first part of the Shema, it begins to take effect. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Paul says in Romans six seventeen, you have now been made obedient from the heart, which means you can now love the Lord your God from your heart, with all your heart. That was not possible before. In fact, and we went over this, the old covenant was looking forward to this. Moses says, You're you're going to be circumcised from the heart. There's going to come a day when God will cut the sin out of your heart and throw it away. And then you'll be able to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And David said, Oh God created me a clean heart. God has washed our hearts by making us obedient from the heart so that we can love him with all our heart. And Jeremiah says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant that I made at Sinai. I'm going to write the law on your hearts. It's no longer going to be something external. The finger of God by the Holy Spirit is going to write it on your heart, which means you're going to be able to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you're going to love the law with all your heart, and that's new, says Jeremiah. Ezekiel says something very similar. You have a heart of stone. It can't beat. It can't keep you alive. You are spiritually dead because your heart, not your physical heart, but your spiritual heart is a stone. But I'm going to give you a beating heart. And this is where it gets confusing. He says a heart of flesh. He's using flesh in a different way. A heart that is spiritually alive is what Ezekiel says. And now Paul comes along and says, that's happened. That's happened. You have been made obedient from the heart. Now put this in context with the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your nefesh and all your ma'od. I think it's helpful to use the Hebrew words because soul doesn't mean soul to us and might doesn't mean might. The main thrust then, having taken this detour back to reformulate what it means to be a human person according to the Bible the main thrust then of Romans 6 and 7 is you've been given a new heart capable of loving God it's amazing Absolutely amazing. Therefore, and this is where Paul is going, live from the heart, live from the inside out to love God with all your nefesh and all your ma'od. You've been given a new heart, now live from the heart to love the Lord your God, not just with all your heart, but also with all your nefesh and all your ma'od. That's preamble number two. See what I mean? This is not introductory. Preamble number three. We cannot understand this text without defining what Paul means by flesh. So what does Paul mean when he says the flesh? I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. I've read a lot about it. And very good scholars dance around this. Or they acknowledge they don't really know. And it's not that we don't know what the flesh does. We do. We know the effect of the flesh. We know what the flesh produces, but where do we locate it? I don't know. I don't know. Because there is a Greek word for nephesh, and it's not sarx. Paul uses the word sarks, That's what we translate flesh. But the Greek word for nephesh is suke. And Paul, Paul doesn't use that word. It would have been really helpful if he just says, you know, there's a struggle between the, the heart and the soul. But he doesn't. He brings in a new word, which is not in the Shema, which makes it challenging. What also makes it challenging is there's another Greek word for body, physical body. So the word sarks can mean the physical flesh of your body but there's another word for body which is soma which really literally means your body paul doesn't use that word either the other thing that makes this difficult is the word sarx gets used both positively and negatively right think about jesus the word became flesh so how can we have a problem with the flesh? A- and later Paul's going to say that he, was, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. So it's a very confusing word. It's very hard to understand. The word f- sarx, which is translated flesh, can mean physical flesh. It can mean more broadly humanity. Well, that's what it means when, when John writes, the word became flesh. The word became a human. So, so we know that the semantic range of this word, what I mean by that is what can this word mean? Because words can mean many things. The range of this word can include it, the word sarx can mean human, human being. When the word became flesh, Jesus Christ took on all of humanity. Everything that makes you and me human, Jesus became. It can mean personhood, or it is used for the incarnation of Jesus. So, where does Paul locate the flesh? It's not clear. But I would argue, and I will, and I am, that Paul, steeped in the Old Testament, has to be conceiving of the human person in the terms of the Shema. So, there's things that we can say about the flesh. The flesh is not the lave, because he says we've been made obedient from the heart. I would argue that the flesh is not the ma'od. Because the ma'od is, is not part of the flesh. It's the sphere of your influence. Which leaves us only with the, the nefesh. What I don't want to do though is to say that the flesh is the nefesh. Or the, the flesh is the soul, the life. Because Paul doesn't say that. But I would say whittling it down that the flesh, when Paul talks about it, would be located conceptually somewhere or it's, it's related intimately to this idea of nephesh, which is your life. All we can say about the flesh is that it's real and that it exists and it's not part of the heart. Although there are some scholars who say that it is part of the heart, I would disagree with them. But if it is, it's the very external part of the heart. What does it mean that the flesh resides in the, in the Nephesh? Well, it's ambiguous. Is the flesh just in the physical body or is it in the physical body and the human spirit? Can it be both? I don't know. But it's not in the heart and it's not in the ma'od. And that's about as far as I think I want to take it the flesh has something to do with who you are as a person and it's real and it lingers in you. I think an appropriate humility is important. I just want to read for you Hebrews 4, chapter 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What's the point of the writer of Hebrews there? The word of God is so precise that it can divide even the soul and the spirit. And the point is, we can't. I don't know where the soul ends and the spirit begins. The Bible doesn't articulate that. God hasn't revealed that to us. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is God's word is precise and God knows. So let's leave this to God. But the important thing for us is that this is not a battle that is engaged in the Christian between between or within the heart. The battle Christians are engaged in is a battle between the heart and the flesh. That becomes very clear. It's a battle between the heart and the flesh. This is not a battle in the heart. It's a battle from the heart. That is critically important. As you are struggling in your Christian life, the battle is not raging inside your heart. The battle is raging from your heart. And the battle is between your heart and your flesh. Remember, the heart is the center of your personhood, your mind, your affections, your volitions, your will brings us to preamble number four we cannot understand this text without reviewing the context of Romans 6 and 7 which we've already done so I'll do it very quickly Romans 5 Adam's one transgression was enough to condemn the entire human race God gave the law through Moses to multiply our sin why would he do that? Well, if there's a crack in a vase, I've done this a couple times, this illustration, but if there's a crack in the vase and I fix that crack, that's one thing. If I shatter the vase and then fix it, that's much more impressive. So all to the glory of God, God gives us more sin to multiply our guilt before Him so that when He redeems us, all the more glory to Him. Where sin multiplied, justifying grace abounded all the more to the glory of God then which means there is no sin too great that God cannot justify. There's nothing that God cannot forgive. Christ is sufficient for every and for all sin. Romans 6, then. Should we keep on sinning to help God out, to give Him more glory? Absolutely not. But why not? Because we cannot... Because, in addition to being justified, to be declared righteous, we've also been united with Christ, and that has transformed our very nature. We've been made obedient from the heart. We have a new heart, and in that new heart, a new nature. And saved people with new hearts do not sin, and saved people with new hearts do not want to sin. Except that we all sin. Romans 7 then, the old covenant was a bad marriage between a sinful heart, a dead heart, and the perfect righteous law. The new covenant is a good marriage between a holy heart, a new heart that loves the Lord God and loves the law, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if marriage to the law is bad resulting in death, is the law evil? No. We are the faulty partner in the bad marriage, not the perfect law. The law reveals sin. The law rouses sin. But it is the sin in us that kills us. This is exactly where we pick up Paul's argument in verse 12. Let's take a look at the text. Remember, the preamble has done all the work. With all of that in mind, let's read what Paul has to say. Verses 12 to 14. Therefore, Just, sorry, that's the wrong verse. 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh... That's the introduction of this idea, the flesh, sold under sin. In in these verses, Paul says the law is holy, the law is righteous, the law is good, the law is spiritual. It says that it's the sin that is the agent of death. It's sin that is revealed by the law, not created by the law, but revealed by the law. and sin, when it sees what we should not do, is roused by the law. That is, that sin sees what we ought not to do, and sin desires to do the very thing that we ought not to do. And Paul then says, "And I am of the flesh. I, I am not spiritual and holy and righteous and good. I'm sold under sin." Therefore, Paul says, in my flesh, I'm still subject to sin's presence. Sin's presence lingers in my flesh. And this is normative for the Christian life. What does it mean experientially to be of the flesh, to be sold under sin? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verse 15 I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. That's what it means to be of the flesh. That's what it means to be sold under sin. But I want you to notice something. In verse 15, he says, I don't understand my actions. That's the mind. I don't understand why I'm living the way that I am. Because according to my mind, I'm doing something I don't want to do. I do not do what I want. There's the the desire, the volition, the will. I will to do something different than I'm doing. And I do the very thing that I hate. There's the affections. I don't desire the behavior that I'm doing. Those are the three parts of, of the heart. So to be of the flesh, to be sold under sin, comes with a transformed heart. Intellectually, Paul doesn't understand himself. Volitionally, he's doing what he doesn't will to do. Affectionately, he doesn't do what he desires. You have the three parts of the Hebraic understanding of heart active in what Paul is describing it means to be of the flesh. There's a regenerative aspect to this that cannot be said of unbelievers... Therefore, to be of the flesh sold under sin, it means that there is now a struggle against sin. This is the Christian life. This is the reality that we all acknowledge. This is why we chafe when the preacher stands up and says you're a new creature and you don't desire sin. In fact, you do not sin where you've been born again. We say, that's not true of me. If it's not, if you can't relate to verse 15, then you're not saved if you understand your actions, if you deeply desire the sin that you are doing, if you are willing according to your deepest will, then you're not saved. Now we come to verses 16 to 23, a long stretch. And what I want you to notice is Paul is going to make a distinction between two parts of himself. He has the true me versus the not true me. Me in capital M. It's me versus the sin that dwells within me. It's my inner being versus my flesh. It's my mind versus the law of sin that dwells in my members. Do you see that? The interior versus the exterior. The true me versus the not true me. Notice that the, the me, the inner being, the mind all correspond to the true Paul. This is who Paul says he really is. This is who I really am. Remember also Romans six seventeen, Paul's been made obedient from the heart. So this begins to make sense. The the the, the me that's interior and true is a corresponding with his heart. And the, the, the part of him that he takes responsibility for, but it's not true to who he truly is, is exterior. It's not part of the lave. It's part of the flesh. Therefore, the division is not in the heart. It's not in the me. It's not in the inner being. It's not in the mind. The division is between two parts of Paul, the inner Paul and the outer Paul. The inner Paul, the Paul from the heart, agrees with and loves the law, and he loves the Lord God. This can only be true of him if he has a new heart. The inner Paul, or the Paul from the heart, Does not always win control of the member of members of Paul's body, but it is never coming from his heart when he sins. Let's take a look at these verses. Verses 16 through to 23. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Where does he agree with the law? In in his volition, in his mind. In his affections. Verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's so helpful if you understand that he's not saying that he's not responsible for his sin, because personhood is never restricted just to the heart. But when Paul says, it is no longer I who do it, what he's really saying is, no longer I who do it from the heart. I'm doing it, but not from the heart. It's sin that dwells within me. See, he takes ownership of it, but that sin doesn't dwell in my heart. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Oh, that's a problem because that undoes everything that I've taught you for the last month, except that he qualifies it. I know that there's nothing good in me. That is in my flesh. And that qualification means that there is good in Paul. In his nature. Remember what Jesus said to the rich young man. Why do you call me good? God only is good. And those whom God has redeemed and given us the right to partake of the divine nature. Where is that partaking of the divine nature? Well, it's not in the flesh. There's nothing good that dwells in me. That is in my flesh. But in my heart, there is good. Because I've been crucified with Christ and I've been made new. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire in my heart to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want. You you hear it? But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's saying the same thing over again. He takes responsibility for his sinful actions, but he's trying to tell us he's not, he's not sinning from the heart. So I find it to be a law, verse 21, that what I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For, and this is explicit, verse 20 22 I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The lave. But I see in my members evidence of another law waging war against the law of my mind. Again, that makes more sense now if you connect mind to lave. Inner being, mind, that's all parts of the lave, the heart. I see this law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells not in the heart, but where? In my members. External Paul. So you see, if you, if you have the right paradigm for understanding these verses, it begins to make a little bit more sense. And this is the common experience that we're all familiar with. And it's crucial that we understand this battle. This does not mean when you, do, when you fall into sin, and even when you have a, a longing for sin, this does not mean that you are not holy in your heart. But it does mean that we have holy hearts at war with the flesh and the law of sin that continues to linger in our flesh. But at the core of a Christian is a holy heart that does not sin and does not desire sin. And therefore I exhort you, live from the heart. Take control of your nefesh and your ma'od from the heart but I will acknowledge that this is not a struggle that we can ultimately win in this life. Not ultimately. We do not here believe in perfectionism. Which is why Paul cries out as he does in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? An unsaved person cannot and will not cry out like this. This is the cry of a holy heart that does not yet have full control over the full nephesh and ma'od of your person. If you do not have a regenerate new heart, you will not cry out, wretched man that I am. But if you do, and you are in a war against your nafesh or your flesh, and your ma'od, you say, why can I not take control of myself? Why are these external parts of myself still lingering and taking pleasure in the law of sin and death? And Paul says, Oh, would I but throw that off? Who will rescue me from this body of death? And what's the answer? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus. Christ, And what Paul is hinting at there is one day this body will die and we will be liberated from the flesh. And then Christ will raise up this body in glory to be like His resurrected glorious body. And we will never, ever struggle against sin again. And our hearts inside of us will be united with a holy body, a holy nafesh, and a holy ma'od. And all of us will be holy unto the Lord. And we will not struggle against sin anymore. And then our hearts will cry out, praise be to God. We have waited for Him. And now we live fully for Him. And now the command, love the Lord your God with all your lave and with all your nefesh. And all your ma'od will come to consummation. And you will love God fully and always and forever. Praise be to God. But not yet would that we be satisfied that we can love God from the heart. Because that's something that we never had before. Paul then summarizes what he's been trying to articulate. So then I myself that is in my heart from my lave serve the law of God with my mind heart "But with my flesh that is that which is exterior, I serve the law of sin. So this is the struggle. Knowing this to be true, I think there's great power in this. we need not walk around like defeated sinners. We're always going to trip and stumble but If you're in Christ, you have a new heart. So fight the good fight of the faith from the heart. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling in the Holy Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Be transformed as you gaze upon Christ from one degree of glory to another. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Resist the devil, and he will flee far from you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and from the heart work at subduing the flesh your nefesh, and your ma'od, all by the grace of our loving God who's united us in the death of Christ, united us in the resurrection of Christ, that we from the heart might be obedient and walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Oh God, big, big concepts. Help us. Help us to live from the heart. And Lord, if any of us don't have this new heart, I pray that you would bring about our union with Christ, that we might be made new creatures. And then help us to live from the heart for our progressive sanctification and for your glory. And we, with Paul, cry out, wretched man, wretched woman that we are. Who will save us from this body of death? Oh, praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be raised in glory. And the battle will be over. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.